Carrie and I are taking the month of July off to recharge, but we'll be back with all new episodes in August. Until then, we have some great replay episodes. So this week, we're revisiting a fascinating episode we did with author Katie Yoakum. Katie's first novel is a work of ecofiction, or cli-fi as some like to call it, a subgenre that is becoming more and more important and popular as our environment becomes more and more uh, endangered. Uh, her book, Three Ways to Disappear, follows a journalist who travels to India, the country where she lived as a child to face unpleasant memories in her past, but also to investigate the plight of the Bengal tiger. And in her book, she explores family drama, but also how the lives of humans butt up against the needs of the tiger and their habitat. We talked to Katie right after her novel had won the Saskatoon Prize for Environmental Literature. We hope you enjoy this episode as much as we did. reading at their very best are a social experience. Whether it be a book club, a poetry slam, or the production of a play, words are meant to be shared. I'm your host, Amy. And I'm your host, Carrie. We've been in a book club together for over a decade and enjoy talking about what we're reading, but in so many ways, we are opposites. Carrie is a cat lover, but I'm a dog nut. Amy loves a good party, while I prefer to wear my fuzzy socks while introverting on the couch. But books are the tie that binds. Each week, we have fun conversations with interesting people about how books and reading influence their lives. We will find out what books are on their nightstands and ask them about five things that make them who they are. We invite you to learn more about the many perks of being a book lover. This week, Carrie and I traveled to record at the Tompkins Buchanan Rankin Mansion, which is a Victorian-era mansion built in 1871 with 12-foot ceilings, hand-carved wood balusters, and intricately designed colorful wallpapers. It has been preserved and enveloped by the campus of Spalding University and is the location of their School of Creative and Professional Writing and home base for today's guest, debut novelist Katie Yoakum. Katie's novel, Three Ways to Disappear, was published in 2019 and has won numerous awards, including the Siskiyou Prize for Environmental Fiction. It has also been selected as a Barnes & Noble indie book favorite. Katie has vivid memories of as a child reading All Creatures Great and Small by James Harriet out loud with her mother. It was a short leap to her writing her own book about the intricacies of animal conservation and family bonds. Katie tells us how her obsession with a set of newborn tiger cubs at the Louisville Zoo 14 years ago started her on the path to write her book, how a suggestion from an astute editor changed the trajectory of her novel, and why she believes much of the riskier and cutting-edge literature is being published by small independent presses, and how important it is to support them. Amy and I have gone on a field trip today to Spalding University downtown, and we are with Katie Yoakum, who is the author of an award-winning debut novel called Three Ways to Disappear. She is also the Associate Director of Spalding School of Creative and Professional Writing. We're very excited to talk to her today. Welcome. Thank you. I'm excited to be here with you. So Katie, I first encountered you and your book in the fall. I went to the Southern Festival of the Book, and you were there doing a panel discussion with several other authors and did a reading of your book, and I was really impressed and thought, we need to get her on the show. So I'm super excited to talk to you today. Oh, thank you so much. I'm excited you were there. That was a fun uh, festival. So tell us a little bit about yourself. 
So I'm originally from Atchison, Kansas. I grew up on a little farm there, and I've lived in Louisville most of my life. I moved here after college, and I'm old enough that that is now most of my <laughs> life. But I'm a writer, obviously. I'm a traveler. I'm a food lover. I'm an animal lover. And in addition to working for the School of Creative and Professional Writing here at Spalding, I'm also a proud alum of the La Residency MFA in writing here, which is now part of the School of Writing. The MFA program and Spalding have really become so central to my life. You know, my writing community all springs from Spalding and from the MFA program, and it's just become really core. What is a low residency program? What does that mean? So that means that if you think of like a traditional program as being one where you come to class every day and you sit in a classroom and you have the semesters like that, low residency programs operate. Each semester starts off with a residency that we have here on campus. It's about 10 days long and that's kind of like literary boot camp. Our students and our faculty come in from all over the country and we have workshops and lectures and panel discussions and readings and this very intensive 10-day course. It's actually a three-credit hour graduate course all in 10 days. So we're working basically morning to night. Um, and then after that, the rest of the semester, everyone goes home and it's all done by independent study. And that works so well for writing because you don't write in a classroom surrounded by other people, you write at home. And so you're working one-on-one -on -one with a mentor at that point. So you write for three weeks, send off your writing to your mentor, you get comments, and then you, know, you do that all over again five times over the course of the semester. And it's super intensive. It's actually much more focused on the student than a traditional classroom can be. You get so much work critiqued, you get so much individual attention, and it's a really fantastic model. So with the creative and professional writing, mm -hmm. I figure most people know what creative writing looks like, but what mm -hmm. types of things are encompassed in the professional writing portion? So the professional writing portion is newer for us. We just rolled that out in the past year, but that can include grant writing, speech writing, food writing, travel writing, writing for arts organizations, nonprofits, or corporate writing. Basically what we realized was that a lot of our creative writing graduates were actually making a living as writers doing those kind of professional things. We see the connection there and we wanted to offer that specifically on its own. So what started you on the path to becoming a writer? That's a great question, and I have to go back to my childhood. My mom sat me on her lap and read to me from the time I was an infant. I can still remember her reading me like Dr. Seuss's ABC, and then as I grew up, she kept reading to me. She kept reading to me after I could read to myself. I can remember that we would lie on the bed together sometime, and I was probably 10 or so, and we would alternate reading chapters to each other of James Harriet's book, All Creatures Great and Small, mm -hmm. which is about a country veterinarian in England. And it was way above my grade level. And we had to stop like every half page and get out the dictionary. And, but she just instilled this love of reading in me. And it's hard for me to articulate how that translated into me becoming a writer, but it did. I sort of think that reading the same books over and over and over when I was a kid and when I was reading those middle grade books, I just feel like I read them so often that the sentences just sort of like seeped into me and gave me an understanding of 
how it's done. I don't know if that makes sense. That's, that's how I make sense of it for myself. I write professionally. Sometimes when I'm writing, I will have words that I do not use on the regular and I don't know where they came from and they'll just pop into my head. (laughs) And I don't know how this happens, but it just does. And so I wonder if part of that is just when you are either read to, you know, from childhood or if you're a big reader, you may not be aware of how the writing and the sentence structure and the language affects you. But I find for myself it ends up coming out in my writing in ways that, like, I don't know where it came from. Yeah, I agree completely. One of the things that feels really natural to me is pacing. Like, if I'm writing a scene, I, f- I feel like I understand instinctively where to put the dialogue and then how much action or description to put in after that before the next piece of dialogue. I think that's just something I absorbed mm-hmm. from all that writing. Mm-hmm. So were you the type of young person who kept a diary and would write poetry and short stories? I mean, was it something that you always did, or has that been a progression that happened later? You know, it's really funny. I have a terrible traumatic story from my childhood. When I was maybe eight, I went down to the drugstore and I bought a diary with like a little lock and key. And I wrote like my first entry in it, which I think was something like, I bought a diary today. (laughs) (laughs) And then my big sister Uh, came into my room, found my diary, cut it open with scissors and read it and then made fun of me for it. And so I have never kept a diary since then, even though I feel like that's a terrible hindrance as a writer. I know I should be keeping a diary. I know I should be journaling. And I can't make myself do it. It's kind of awful. (laughs) Uh, But I did, I wrote stories and poems. It's kind of funny. I don't have a lot of really clear memories of the stories I was writing, except I'm sure I was like ripping off, you know, the books that I was reading. (laughs) Trixie Belden and her friends, you know, they're stranded on a desert island and things like that. Let's move on to your book, Three Ways to Disappear. Can you give us a little synopsis of your book and then how you came to write it? Yeah. This is a story about two sisters whose family was torn apart by a tragedy when they were children. And now they're adults and they're kind of trying to find their way back to each other from opposite sides of the world. One of them lives here in Louisville. And the other one lives this adventurous, globetrotting lifestyle. And at the beginning of the book, settles down in India, where she decides to take a job working in wildlife conservation. So it's really the story of the two sisters trying to mend a a hole that's been at the center of their life for a really long time. How long did it take to write it and get it published? Forever. (laughs) 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 So I first got the idea for the book in... I guess 2005. There was a litter of cubs, uh, tiger cubs, born at the Louisville Zoo in 2004. And so one thing I didn't say in the synopsis of the book is that there are tigers in this book. There are a lot of tigers in this book. There are a lot of tigers in the book. In fact, they sort of have a family story that's parallel to the human story, a little bit, I would say. But these cubs were born at the Louisville Zoo in 2004. I got obsessed with them. I started going like all the time to look at them and just to revel in their adorableness. And at the same time, I had just graduated from Spalding with my MFA, and I didn't have a writing project at the time, and I wanted to have a writing project. But I thought that my crazy obsession with tigers was just too random and wild and out there, and I didn't really see that I could turn it into a novel. But then at some point, I don't know, something switched for me, and I started to be able to see that, and 
I started researching tigers. I came up with the idea for the book. Eventually, I traveled to India to research it. And then I, I think I finished the first draft in 2007. And it was published in 2019, so forever, yeah. I, I'm just envisioning you being at the zoo, watching these tiger cubs. Were you taking notes, or were you just immersed in enjoying watching them? I was just enjoying watching them. I went back to this really childlike place. I was really in the moment. I was not taking notes. I wasn't doing anything analytical which is unusual for me. I'm usually always analyzing things. But Julia Cameron talks about the artist date, and the idea there is to go out and do something that is just basically play. And I, I hadn't read the book at that time, her book, The Artist's Way, but I read it after I started going to visit the Cub, and I realized belatedly that I was taking myself on artist dates. You know, it turned out to be a really productive thing to do, even though... At the time, I felt like I was just indulging this inexplicable, crazy passion. When you finished the book in 2007, mm -hmm. and you've got it done, then what happened? What I mean, what was so that? Long. Right, what was the process? <laughs> well, first of all, I finished a draft, and then before we sat down and started recording this, we were talking about revising, taking a story or a lump of clay yeah. to make it into yeah. a piece of pottery. So I love revisions. So when I say I wrote the book, I finished writing it in 2007, what I finished was a draft. And then I went back to it and I started revising. And I was working full time. And so I was able to basically do a complete revision of the whole manuscript about once a year. I loved the story. I loved the topic. I loved the tigers. I kept coming back to it. I think it was 2012 that I signed with an agent and I thought, oh, this is great. The book's going to sell any minute. And she took it out and started trying to find a home for it at the big publishing houses that we've all heard of, you know, Penguin Random House and the big five publishing houses in New York. And we got a lot of really beautiful rejections. <laughs> um, but they're still rejections. But they're still rejections. I think a lot of what I was up against was this was a story about people, but it was also a story about tigers. And that was just weird. You know, it was too weird for the big publishing houses. I don't know if you know this, but Life of Pi... Well, was, I was just thinking. I'm like, yeah. did they not... No, no. Life of Pi was first published in England because he could not get it published here in the United States. It was only after it became a huge hit abroad. That, that over here on this side of the pond, we went, oh, oh tigers, tigers, animals can make a good story. Right. The, the big publishing houses in New York are so conservative. You know, I think if I had written something less weird, less quirky. I, I would have had an easier time, I speculate. But it, my agent is fantastic, and she was working like crazy to, to find a home for it. And, you know, it just turned out that the big five publishing houses weren't going to touch it. So eventually I kind of went back to taking a, a broader approach. I decided to start looking at small presses and independent presses. So I started entering contests and that's where I started to gain some traction. My book was a finalist in a few different contests and then finally it won. It won the Siskiyou Prize for New Environmental Literature. 
There's more to the story, but that's basically how I came to find my publisher. So I know that you received a grant from the Elizabeth George Foundation. What is the Elizabeth George Foundation, and where does that fall in this timeline? Okay, so Elizabeth George is a mystery writer. She's written, I don't know how many books, at least 20, I would say, at this point. She has a foundation, and I did a lot of research on this. I, I was an unpublished writer at that time. I mean, I'd published essays and short pieces here and there, but I didn't have a book. And it turns out that there are very few foundations that are going to provide funding for an unpublished author. And the Elizabeth George Foundation was one of the very few that said, you can write a grant and we'll take a look at it, and actually provides support. So at that point... I had written maybe 50 pages of a first draft. I was trying to write the the story of the sister who went to India and was working in tiger conservation. And I realized I didn't know enough to write that story. And so I didn't have a full draft of the manuscript. I had about 50 pages. I applied for the grant and I said, look, I've got to go to India to write this and I hope you'll fund me. And you know, I'm going to India whether or not you fund me. And I got the grant. I was actually in India when I found out that I got the grant. Oh, oh wow. So, <laughs> felt like I was being fiscally responsible to apply for the grant, but then super fiscally irresponsible to just go anyway. <laughs> but it worked out. So when you were there, what types of things did you do when you were in India? I spent most of the time on tiger reserves, so national parks in India. I went to three different parks, and the, the first one I went to was Ranthambore National Park, and that's where I decided to set my book, because it's just so spectacular. I mean, if you can imagine like a beautiful national park, but with thousand-year-old ruins in it. There's a fortress, there are palaces, there are these beautiful ruins from this ancient civilization, and the tigers are just kind of lounging around among the ruins, and it's just so beautiful. It just captured my imagination. And I went to a couple of other reserves that were also beautiful and inspiring in their own way, but that combination at Ranthambore with the the natural beauty and then these mind-blowing ruins in amongst it was just magical. Is it close to New Delhi or is it like in the north, the south? Where is that part of India? It's north. The closest big city is Jaipur. So it's about eight hours from Delhi. It's about three or four hours by car from Jaipur. So it's Uh, pretty remote. It is. There's a town called Sawai Madhapur that's really near the park. It's about 100,000 people, which in India I think qualifies as a small town. (laughs) Right. But it's rural, mostly. The park is surrounded by a lot of rural land, a lot of tiny villages of 1,000, 2,000 people who are making their living as farmers and herders. Did you go totally by yourself and just wing it, or did you have a guide? Well, I'm getting a little anxiety here thinking about this. So, <laughs> Well, I had a guide. One day I was searching the internet for pictures of tigers, as one does, right? And <laughs> If I, you're obsessed with tigers, <laughs> yes. <laughs> and I stumbled across this company that specializes in putting together packages, like individual travel for people who want to go see tigers. So it's not a package. It's not like we're running a tour on so-and-so dates, sign up. It's just 
you know, hey, I'm I'm a weirdo over here who wants to go see tigers, and you know, here are my dates. <laughs> Hook me up. <laughs> Hook me up. That's exactly what it was. So they did, and it was really great because they knew what they were doing, and I told them that I was writing a book. So they said, oh, we need to make sure that you get to interview people and we're going to show you things that you might not think to see on your own. So they hooked me up with the world's greatest guide at Ranthambore. His name's Vipul Jain. So Vipul was doing the things that I expected him to do, like driving me around the park and pointing out tigers, but also doing things like taking me to villages near the park that are actually affected by the presence of tigers in their midst, taking me to a hospital that was built by a foundation that's trying to help the people who are living in so much poverty near the park because it turns out you really can't help the tigers if you can't help the people who are living potentially in conflict with mm-hmm. the tigers. Which is a big portion of your book. And it wouldn't have mm-hmm. been if it hadn't been for Vipul and the things that he showed me. I had no idea. In fact, even when I was there on the ground in India and he was saying, we're, we're going to go to a village, we're going to go to this hospital... I was kind of like, okay, I don't understand why, but then I did understand why after the fact. And how long were you there? Just three weeks, which doesn't seem like much time, but I felt like it just soaked into me somehow. The story, besides the part about the tigers, the story Mm -hmm. itself is about three siblings, two of which are twins, Mm -hmm. and then an older sibling. And I don't think it's a spoiler to say that one of the twins dies Mm -hmm. when they're children. So why did you choose twins for this story? And what made you want to write a family saga about dealing with a sibling's death? Those questions are actually a little bit mysterious to me. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not a twin, and I don't have twins in my family. But to me, that represents a, a particular kind of really deep connectedness. And I'm interested in that. I'm interested in the questions of how we connect to each other and how we don't connect to each other or even can't connect to each other. That's an abiding question for me that I think I'll always be exploring. And then the other thing about, like, why did I write about death? I think it's because I have, like most people, I guess, I have questions about what happens after we die. I mean, some people don't, and I envy them a little bit, but I I have questions. I think it's unknowable, and I'm drawn to write about what I don't know, what I don't understand, what I'm trying to make sense of. I think also, from the time I was a child, I always turned to reading as a place to look for answers Mm -hmm. for how to live. You know, how can we live? How can we carry on? How can we deal with what life brings to us? I mean, that was always kind of behind my reading especially when I was 12 or 13 and I was discovering the Narnia books. And, you know, even when I was a little younger, the Laura Ingalls Wilder books in in their own way were that for me. I mean, I feel like books were always kind of an instruction manual for life for me. So which part of the story came first to you? Was it the tiger part or the siblings part? The The tiger tiger part. part. The tiger part, definitely. In fact, I think if you read the book... And then you ask me that question. It's, I think it's kind of surprising. The sibling part really it didn't emerge in its full flower until about the fourth revision. Wow. So definitely the tigers came first. But what I realized was that even though I've just been sitting here talking about connectedness and the big questions of life, I realized that I wasn't really getting at what I wanted to get at just by focusing on the tigers. So I had to put more people in my book. (laughs) (laughs) 
less fur, more skin. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> we had mentioned that your book is award-winning. Tell us about the environmental piece and the award for that came into play. So I was looking on the Poets and Writers website, and I was looking for contests and places that were accepting manuscripts, and I came across Ashland Creek Press, which is a press that focuses on animal stories. And I thought, well, that looks like a good fit for me. (laughs) And then I saw they were running this contest for environmental literature, so I entered it. And it's funny, by that point, I had worked on the book for so long that even though it started out very much strictly an animal story, it had evolved over the years to where it had become a family story. But obviously, the tigers are still a huge part of the story and that's how I found them and you know I entered my book into the contest and I was lucky enough that they decided that was the book they wanted to choose. How would you describe environmental fiction or eco-fiction? How would you define it? I think a lot of what's being written these days is very climate-based. Right. That's what pops into my head when I think of that term. But you're more on the animal conservation side. I'm more, yeah, I'm more on the animal side. I mean, I think it's a a really good thing that, I mean, what they call cli-fi, it's now its own category. And I think, obviously, nothing could be more important. When I wrote my book, I didn't even really realize that I was writing climate change into my book, but I was. There were real issues based on actual events with a years-long drought that goes into it. But as far as echo fiction, you know, that can take on many, many forms. But it's our relationship to the world, to the earth, to the other inhabitants of the earth besides people. And I think it's becoming much more apparent to everyone now that we can't ignore that. Mm -hmm. You know, we're not living in isolation here on this planet. So your book received some international attention for an unusual reason. Tell us about that. (laughs) So when I was at Ranthambore, the tigress that I saw most often was this gorgeous, charismatic, beautiful creature named Muchley. She had some cubs, and I saw her several times at Ranthambore. And I wrote her into my book, or at least I wrote a fictionalized version of her into my book. A lot of the tiger sightings that I relate in my book are based 100% on actual sightings that I had. A few things that I write are fictionalized. So I have to make the disclaimer that the Muchley in the book is a fictionalized version of Muchley the real tiger. But when my book came out, I did not realize that in the intervening years, Muchley, the tigress at Ranthambore, had become like a national celebrity, a huge national celebrity in India. She had become basically like the representative tiger of India. The poster child. The poster (laughs) poster tiger. The poster tiger of India. And there are just some amazing stories about her. When she finally died of old age a few years ago, they gave her a full funeral. There are pictures you can find on the internet of her body being carried on a pallet that's filled with flowers. And it's amazing. She was revered. And I did not realize that. I thought, you know, I went to India. I met a tiger (laughs) and I fell in love with her. And then I wrote about her. But yeah, the Indian press got a hold of the fact that I had written this book starring her. And so I was getting calls for basically celebrity interviews. Like, what did you think about Muchley? Wow. (laughs) It was amazing. 
over the course of all your revisions that you did, how much did the writing community around you play a role in helping you get through that process? Oh, that was huge. You know, so there are the people who are your readers. Every time you finish a revision, you have your trusted readers that you'll hand it to and you'll say, you know, what do you think? And where is it strong and where is it weak? And what should I revisit? So those people for me were all from my life at Spalding. Mm -hmm. But then there's also just the general support of the community. I mean, I was so lucky to live right in the midst of a writing community of people who completely understand that, okay, so you've been working on this book for 10 years. You know what? It takes 10 years sometimes. And I know a lot of writers live in a world where they're the weirdo and they're trying to convince their family members, no, I really do need to keep working on this book. And their family members and their friends are saying things like, you know, you gave that a shot. Maybe it's time for you to move on. Well-meaning, but discouraging. Mm -hmm. And I, I was just so fortunate that nobody ever came at me with that kind of discouragement. Everybody just was so supportive and loving and telling me to keep going. And I really think that was essential to me being able to keep going for all those years. I know a lot of times students, when you ask them to do a revision, they look at Mm. this like it's punishment. Mm. I've taken all this time to put all these important special words on the page and now you want me to cut at them. (laughs) So what are your philosophies about the whole revision and editing and being comfortable with looking at what you've written and going, some parts of this need to be deleted. Absolutely. That is a great question. So my undergraduate degree is in journalism. And over the years, I've done a lot of freelance writing. And one of the first things that I learned as an undergrad was you are not your writing. You know, your words are not you. Your words are something that, yes, you pour yourself into them passionately when you're writing them, but then you have to step away and you have to turn a cold eye on them. And I discovered the power of that a long time ago. So I'm a true believer in revision. I haven't mentioned the fact yet that when my book won the the Siskiyou Prize, they didn't offer me publication right away. And eventually I asked them why. And they said, well, we love your book, but it's kind of sprawling. It was about 400 manuscript pages. And they said, we really couldn't even consider it unless you were able to go back to it and cut it down to about 300 pages. So about 25%. That was where my journalistic training kicked in and I said, you know what, I can do this. The other part of that though was not just a blanket like, hey, how about you cut it 25%. There was some really smart editorial feedback from the editor at Ashland Creek Press, Midge Raymond is her name, and she's amazing. She was the person who said to me, you know, you've got all these different points of view in the book, and I think what we have here is a sister story, and you need to make it only that. When you read the book, it's alternating chapters between the two sisters, Quinn and Sarah. The 400-page manuscript that actually won the award, I had four major point-of-view characters, a lot of chapters that were just kind of one-off chapters from other points of view. I had some chapters from the tiger's points of view. It was just too much. It was too big, and as they said, it was too sprawling. So as soon as I read that advice, it just instantly connected with me. It instantly clicked. It's like not everybody is going to have the brilliant insight, and she was the one with the brilliant insight. As soon as she said it, I knew it was right, and that's why when the next thing was can you cut it by 25%? I was able to say, yes, I can, Mm -hmm. 
Because now that you've given me this clearly brilliant piece of advice, I can see my way. I can see the path forward. Well, and I think, too, the idea of when you perform surgery, we're not in the Civil War. You're not performing it with a hacksaw. You're performing it with a scalpel. And so that means editing can be a very fine, precise thing. You're still getting rid of stuff, but you're doing it in a very structured precise way as opposed to I'm just hacking off you know this gangrene part of my story and tossing it out yeah actually the revision process and the process of editing something down it appeals to my sense of okay you have this thing but it can be so much better as you take things away from it and you just reveal the little gem inside taking away everything that doesn't absolutely need to be there And to me, there is a huge amount of joy in doing that. It's just fun for me. So I saw recently that your book is a semi-finalist for the Screen Craft Cinematic Book Competition. What is that? So that is a competition. It's not a screenplay competition. I did not turn my book into a screenplay. But I entered it with the hopes that there might be a production company out there that might look at my book and say, you know what, this would make a great movie. So basically what this competition is, is putting the book in front of industry professionals who can look at it and maybe somebody will fall in love with it. Who knows? Actually, my agent has already been putting it in front of some production companies and the word that's coming back is the Tigers would be too expensive as CGI projects, which just breaks my heart because I don't like CGI animals anyway yeah yeah uh, I'm thinking can't you just go find some National Geographic footage (laughs) and And doctor it up your book is definitely cinematic oh thank you I appreciate that so I was intrigued when I saw that which is why I asked about it well Uh, you know in my dreams someday it will be a movie your book has been picked as a Barnes and Noble indie favorite and I feel like indie presses are getting a lot more press Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> yes. are getting a lot more attention than they used to. So yeah. I'm wondering if you have any thoughts about that. So indie as a term is becoming, it's coming to mean two things at the same time. So it used to be if you talk about independent presses, you were talking about the kind of press that my book was published with, which is just a small publisher doing books not under the aegis of one of the huge houses in New York. Now you also have what used to more commonly be called self-publishing, also falling under that same term. And I'm not super familiar with self-publishing, but as far as like the small presses, Mm -hmm. I think that's where the exciting work is happening. And, you know, it's, it's kind of an underdog thing. If you look at the big prizes that are bestowed on books, almost all the time they go to the books from the big houses. That's part of the benefit of being published by one of those big houses. But the indie presses are picking up work that's a little riskier. It's picking up work that's a little less conservative in the business sense of the word. You know, I think about the movies and I think about how if you have a superhero movie or if you have a sequel to a previously successful film, you have a lot better chance of getting it made than if you're writing some sort of like moody character-driven drama. And I think that's, you know, that's a loss for all of us. I love small presses. I love what they're doing. And I hope readers will take it upon themselves to go out and and find a book or two from a small press and get to know them. So one final question. Since you got this book out, it's been published. Are you working on something new or are you just reveling in the fact that it's out and you can (laughs) ah, rest on your laurels a little bit? 
I'm going to tell you the awful truth, which is that now that my book is out, I'm working my tail off. I've taken it all over the country. I've done all sorts of book festivals and fairs. I'm doing appearances at libraries and bookstores and in people's houses. And it's an amazing privilege to be able to do that. It's also like having a second job. <laughs> I wish I could say that it's super glamorous and I'm just soaking it all up. I am soaking it all up, but I'm working hard to make things happen for it. It's interesting, back in the day before I had a book, you would hear writers talk about self-promotion like it's a dirty word. And what I have found now that my book is in the world, I feel like I'm not promoting myself. I feel like I'm promoting this baby that I made. So maybe that goes back to what I said earlier about feeling like my words are not myself. Mm -hmm. But I feel like since I did the work to bring it into the world, that I owe it to the book to do what I can to, to get it out there. And it's a huge pleasure to be able to do that. And I, I love talking to readers. I love going to visit book clubs. You know, it's so much fun. And it's such a privilege after, you know, all the work that went into it to be able to talk to people who read it and are excited about it or are going to read it. It's very much, we call it the care intending of, of your work, and I'm very much a caretaker and a tender right now. Well, when we come back, we are going to be talking with Katie about what we're all reading. We're here with Katie and Carrie. And Carrie, what have you been reading since the last time I talked to you? So I started an audiobook that I then went and got the actual book because this is such a great book. You know, I like middle school, high school, young reader books because I teach young readers. And so the book that I picked up is called One Crazy Summer by Rita Williams Garcia. And I was listening to it and it's adorable but it's more than adorable the person who did the narration was amazing she had a fantastic voice this is a story of three sisters and it's 1968 they live in brooklyn with their dad and their grandma big ma you learn early on that their mother left when the youngest daughter was a baby the father decides that these girls need to know something about their mother they need to understand their mother cecile so he puts them on an airplane and they fly all the way across the country to Oakland, California, and they stay with their mother. It's one of those stories where there's dynamics between the sisters. Delphine is the oldest and she narrates the story and they think their mother is crazy. She meets them at the airport and she looks like a superstar with her dark sunglasses on and she lives in this house. They were expecting her to live on the street just based on things that their grandmother has told them. Their mother doesn't live on the street. She has a very nice house, and their mother will not let them go into the kitchen. And the reason she will not let them go into the kitchen is because she has a printing press, and she is a poet. Delphine says that Cecile is their mother. She's not a mom. She's not a mama. She's not a mommy. She is their mother. By the end of the book, you learn why she is their mother, and not their mom, their mommy, their mama. And Delphine, she learns a lot about herself. She learns a lot about her mother and the choices that her mother makes. The other interesting part of the story is that Cecile, because she is a mother, 
she sends them out every day. Of course, it's also 1968 where people would say, go outside and I'll see you when it's dark. But the girls go to basically it's like a, a Black Panther community center. And so they are learning about the Black Panthers and getting a sense of what was happening in Oakland, because that's where the Black Panthers developed and where it was created. This story, it reminded me of the Watsons go to Birmingham 1963 a little bit, because this is a story of three African-American children. That was a story of three African-American children, all siblings, who go on this journey across the country. And the characters in this story were equally delightful. And I'm going to teach it because it just had a lot of substance to it. And it's a good way for children to understand that the adults in their lives sometimes make decisions that they don't understand. And they might think that their mom, she was mean and she didn't love them. And they sort of have these stereotypes or these preconceived ideas. And when they hear the full story, they sort of get it. So it's sort of that coming-of-age story. Anyway, I loved it. I thought it was awesome. One Crazy Summer by Rita Williams Garcia. I saw you gave it five stars. I gave it five stars. you don't hardly give anything five stars. I gave it five stars. So I I sort of loved it. Katie, what have you been reading? So I just picked up recently Severance by Ling Ma. This is a book that I guess it came out maybe two years ago. Won all sorts of awards. I recently picked it up and started it, and I'm really finding it delightful. So this is adult fiction, and it is about a character named Candace. She's like a millennial who's living and working in New York and doing what millennials do, you know, trying hard to make it. And she's recently lost both of her parents. She sort of doesn't notice at first when this global pandemic fever starts taking over the city gradually empties out of people and she's kind of caught up enough in her own life that she doesn't really notice what's happening but then eventually she has to confront it and try to find a way to to salvage her life I am absolutely not a fan of apocalyptic fiction (laughs) I read The Road by Cormac McCarthy and I've always regretted that decision I'm sorry, Cormac <laughs> McCarthy, but but it was so traumatic for me to read that book. This is not a traumatic book, at least not so far. I'm only 50 or 60 pages into it. But what I enjoy about it, I like books that are a little bit quirky. So there's some satire going on here. There's some, yes, the world is ending, but also I've got my own life to live. Yeah. <laughs> um, which I think is actually like a really good commentary on where we are right now. But it's, again, at least so far, like this is not a heavy-handed bummer of a read. It's actually really entertaining and interesting. And she's done a great job of kind of planting the questions. And I'm looking forward to seeing how things play out. So I'm just enjoying it thoroughly. I'm happy I picked it up. With the whole pandemic idea, have you been able to follow the news on the coronavirus? I'm getting the willies just thinking about reading that book because of everything that's going on with that virus. You know, all I can say is you're never going to catch me on a cruise ship. (laughs) (laughs) I agree with that sentiment. Well, Amy, what have you had going on? Well, it is 
February, which is Black History Month, and I read Black authors all year long, but I felt that I'd be really remiss if I didn't read at least one during February. So I went back to read a book that I've been wanting to read for a very long time. I read Kindred by Octavia Butler, and I know, Carrie, that you, an episode that we did in January, talked about one of her books, Parable of the Sower, which is what inspired me to go ahead and read this one. Octavia Butler won the Hugo and the Nebula Award, which is big award for science fiction and fantasy writing. And I will say that generally I am not a science fiction or a fantasy reader. I read fantasy sometimes and science fiction almost never. But this is a time travel book and I do love a really good time travel book. So this is her best-selling novel and it was published in 1979. It's the story of a black female writer uh, who's living in Los Angeles in 1976, and her name is Dana. And she is shuttled back and forth in time between her current day of 1976 and then to pre-Civil War M Maryland plantation. And she soon realizes that the plantation belongs to one of her ancestors, Rufus Whalen. So she seems to be sent to the 1800s when Rufus, starting when he's a child, gets into dangerous situations and she must help him survive. So the first time Dana appears on the plantation, Rufus is five and he's drowning in a river and she has to pull him out and save his life. But she's transported back to Los Angeles whenever she feels like she herself is going to die. So the first time she goes back to LA, it's because Ruth's father at the river sees her giving him mouth-to-mouth -mouth resuscitation and thinks that the slave is assaulting his son and he aims a shotgun at her. For some reason, Rufus and Dana are cosmically linked and they're codependent on one another. And the time frame is a little interesting because she can go to the 1800s and perhaps months pass by but when she goes back to Los Angeles, it's maybe been an hour or two. Dana obviously is a highly educated woman. She's a writer, and basically she has to live the life of a slave while she's on this plantation. She's thrown into this world and quickly has to adapt about how she should talk and how she should behave around white people, but also the other slaves. Another interesting aspect of this book is that in her current life in Los Angeles, she's married to a white man, another writer named Kevin. And in fact, on one of her trips back to Maryland, he comes with her. What happens is she gets dizzy and she faints. And he happened to be touching her when this happened. So he goes back with her to 1800 Maryland. And so at first she thinks that maybe this will be a good thing that he can protect her. And so he pretends to be a northerner who has bought Dana and is taking her south to New Orleans. And they just happen to stop on this plantation. So in a way, he's pretending like he owns her to protect her. But what happens is that the longer they stay there, Dana becomes concerned that being in this racially charged place, even for a while, changes her husband's view of her mm -hmm. and widens the racial gap between them. So Rufus is Dana's descendant by way of one of the plantation slaves, Alice. So there's that dichotomy between Dana and Kevin's supportive biracial marriage and Rufus's relationship with Alice, which is coerced and by force. I really enjoyed this book. I thought the writing, it's very straightforward. It's very easy to get into, and it really gave me a lot 
to think about, so I can see why it is considered such a classic. My one quibble with the book, and it's probably just... Really, you're quibbling with Octavia Butler? But but I know that it's totally probably my thing, because I'm not usually a science fiction or fantasy, but it really never gives you any explanation for why Dana is shuffled between these two time periods. It just, I mean, it happens Irrelevant. I guess. I guess it's irrelevant. But I mean, literally, like, within the first chapter, she faints, and then she's in Maryland, and I guess in one way, this helps the reader sympathize with Dana, because she's just thrown into this situation, and the reader is also just thrown into that time period but the part of me that doesn't read a lot of sci-fi or fantasy wanted something some sort of reason no matter how small to help me explain it like a portal or something i don't know well the thought just occurred to me maybe by having it set up that way i mean that's what slavery was yeah people through no fault of their own that was just the situation so it's an utter lack of control yeah, well, that's, that's so, so smart. I feel like a lot of times writers, things that we think, okay, why are they doing this? It may seem accidental or a mistake, but I think sometimes they're trying to force you to see really what their character is experiencing by I, doing that. I would also make the argument that sometimes it's a huge mistake to try to provide an explanation for something. Like, think about Star Wars and the Force, and then you remember when Star Wars Episode One came out and the midichlorians... <laughs> There was the whole thing where Anakin was hearing the story about the midichlorians, which are what the Force really is, and it was just terrible. It took all the magic out of it, Oh, my God, so much. I just like to pretend like that never happened. (laughs) What can I say? There's just a part of me that didn't have to, like, explain anything in detail. Just maybe, like, like, maybe she found a book about how her grandfather's name in it, or I don't know. Or maybe it was a virus. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Carrie's explanation that sounded very it did. smart. That did sound very smart, and now I feel much better about it. Good. Actually, Carrie, there we go. <laughs> well, on that note, we are going to take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to be asking Katie her top five. We are back with Katie Yoka, and we are going to be asking her her top five. So, Katie, you mentioned that you work at Spalding University School of Creative and Professional Writing, and you help run the Study Abroad program. So what has been your top trip that you've taken as a result of that work? Oh, that is such a great question. I've been taking these trips since 2007 when we first started the Study Abroad program, and we've gone all over the world, a lot of different locations in Europe, gone to South America a couple of times. But my top trip, I have to say, was Japan. We spent a couple of weeks in Kyoto, It was the summer of 2019. It was really, really hot. There was a lot of sweating involved, but regardless of that, it was magical. We were there during festival season, and you know, you're walking around in this society that in certain ways feels so familiar and in certain ways feels completely unfamiliar. Because it was festival season, I felt like the cultural rituals were all right there to be not just seen, but also partaken in. There was this one night after dark when we found ourselves like walking barefoot in a river holding candles it was it was amazing so you help coordinate and get all these set up yes i do so that sounds like a lot of fun i love to plan trips so that sounds like 
Oh yeah, it's yeah. it's definitely a huge perk of my job. So do you get to go on all of them? Yes. In oh. fact, the only residency that I've missed was this past year. The group went to Santiago, Chile, and I stayed home because my book was being born. Oh, <laughs> so that's well. a good reason. Yeah, that is a good reason. <laughs> so you've done some ecotourism. Describe what that is, and where's your top ecotourist location? Oh, so ecotourism basically is going to see the natural world in some form or another. And the trip that I took to India to the Tiger Reserves was definitely qualified. And I don't know, that might be my top one. But there are some really good contenders here. Because when I was 14, my mom took me to the Baja Peninsula of Mexico. And we went to the San Ignacio Lagoon, which is the gray whale nursery. So it's where the gray whales were having their babies. And this was long enough ago that you could go out in these zodiacs, these rubber rafts, and be out there among them. And the whales would come up and stick their head out of the water and let you touch them. Even this, this is not allowed now, but it was amazing. Do you normally go with your mom? God love her. My mother, she not only introduced me to reading, but she also introduced me to travel. And she's the reason that I love animals. She actually went to India with me too for the trip. So I got to share that with her. Most of the ecotourism I've done has been with my mom and it's just the best thing. It's it's That's an amazing bond that you guys... I see a Have book there, just letting you know. Oh, thank you. <laughs> I, All right. I see. There's, Wait, there's after, your idea. After things settle down with this book, maybe consider that. I like that suggestion. Thank you. (laughs) Well, I have been on one ecotourism trip. It's the only one, so that's the one I'm going to talk about. But when my oldest son was in middle school, he had a science teacher that arranged a trip for the science class. It was an optional trip every summer. And the year that my son went, we went to Costa Rica. Even though it was just supposed to be my son, and usually it's like parent, our whole family went because my husband and I fought over who was going to get to take him to Costa Rica. (laughs) It was a nine-day trip, and it was an amazing experience. We um, went to see volcanoes. We did zip lines in the rainforest. We stayed at this one lodge, and we had a sloth family that lived on the tree right outside of our little cabin. It was a really great experience. Katie, you said that you're a farmer's market junkie. So what is your top food purchase that you usually make at the market, and why is that your top? Oh, my gosh. I am a farmer's market junkie, and I'm lucky enough to live within walking distance of not one but two of them. So that's like our Saturday morning every every Saturday. So during the summertime... Cherokee purple tomatoes. Mm. They are so good. They're good to eat plain. They're, I use them to make gazpacho, and I cannot explain to you the deliciousness. In fact, I had to think hard whether I wanted to even say the name out loud <laughs> because I don't want people going out there and buying the tomatoes because I want to buy all the tomatoes. Hands off the tomatoes. I totally people. agree with the tomatoes. You can't beat a homegrown summer tomato. They're oh, so yeah. good. I, I love like them. tomatoes. You don't like tomatoes? <gasps> well, the other thing that is incredible at the farmer's market is all the greens, all the different kinds of greens. And even in the dead of winter, the farmers have the hoop tunnels. Mm-hmm. And so you can get the most amazing salad greens or kale or bok choy. They just can't be beat. My husband, he and my teenage daughter, every Saturday during the summer when the farmer's market opens, this is their little thing that they do, 
is that they go to the farmer's market and they get the same thing every time. There's a couple of food vendors there, so they get a breakfast burrito, mm -hmm. and my husband buys my daughter a pumpkin chocolate chip muffin, <laughs> and they get lemonade from the lemonade lady. There's not a lot of produce buying, apparently. <laughs> Tomatoes, if I request them. It's been a fun little bonding thing. So you fell in love with tiger cubs at the Louisville Zoo. What's the top thing that they did that made you adore them so much, besides just being cute? Although maybe that's the thing, being cute. Oh, that is definitely a thing, <laughs> being cute. When I first saw them, they were still really tiny. So they were maybe house cat sized. And they were just so chunky and wobbly. You know, they were literally still learning to walk. So they're like hotter around on their little shaky legs so adorable and then when they got a little older they would do things that one time I went there and they were doing something that I have only seen in a Dr. Seuss book <laughs> one of the cubs was walking behind another cub and the cub in back had the tail of the other cub in its mouth and they're just walking like <laughs> they're just walking single file like hey I'm holding your tail for you so they wouldn't lose each other it's like right. holding hands I don't have tiger cubs in my home, but I do have two house cats. And even though they're distant cousins, I just like to watch cats, no matter whether they're domestic. They're so fun to watch sleep. <laughs> they're just so cute to watch sleep. And so when we go to the zoo, I'm just perfectly happy to watch them sleep because I am not a person who relaxes easily. Mm. But if I can watch a cat sleep, it just what, sort of what, chills me out. What is it about their sleeping? Like, what is it that they're doing? I don't know. That... Cats can sleep anywhere, and it's the way they curl themselves up. At the zoo, there's not usually a ton of cats. But, you know, in the wild, they all lay next to each other and pile on each other. And I don't know. It just looks really cozy. And my cat lays on me on the regular. And I have decided to call it her butt tonic. It's that she lays her butt on me and I instantly fall asleep. <laughs> that is nice. Yeah. And I will tell you this, having seen a variety of cats in the wild, the big cats and the small cats are the same. Mm -hmm. Their movements, the things they do. I mean, you can read a big cat because you know how to read a small cat. Mm -hmm. it's, it's amazing how similar they are. Yeah. So your love of animals, Katie, isn't just for exotic ones. You have several personal pets that are rescues. So explain a little bit about the pet rescue process and the top reason you rescue animals. Back to my mom. Growing up in Atchison, there wasn't a humane society. There was basically nothing. And so my mom just sort of made our house like an animal rescue. One time she came home from being out somewhere and there was a new dog in the house. Somebody had just come, opened the front door, <laughs> shoved the dog in. <laughs> so animal rescue comes really naturally to me. And we have a dog, a cat, and a rabbit. The dog we got through Grand, which is the Golden Retriever Rescue. She's a golden doodle, actually. And my husband had been like watching that website for years. <laughs> and finally this dog came and we adopted her. The cat we got from Perfect Day Cat Cafe on Bardstown Road, which actually those, those are Humane Society kitties. So this was not like going to a pet store and purchasing a pet. And then the rabbit, I was walking through Cherokee Park one day and here's this rabbit sitting on the ground, clearly a domestic rabbit. I mean, he's a Holland Lop. He's this beautiful little lop-eared bunny, 
brown and white. Somebody had dumped him. People always ask me, are you sure he didn't just run away from home? There was no home anywhere within miles. So somebody had dumped this poor little bunny. So I scooped him up and I took him home. And he's our bunny now. But as far as why, I just feel like the fact that domestic animals exist at all is thanks to us. Like we've made this happen. And so we have to take care of them. They can't take care of themselves. I'm sure whoever set this bunny loose in the park thought like, oh, he's a rabbit. He'll just take care of himself. But no, he would have been eaten by a hawk Mm -hmm. or a coyote or something. I feel like we get so much out of our relationship with animals and we need to take care of them. They're so good to us. We need to be good to them somebody wants to follow you are you on social media oh i am yes my name is very hard to spell so on facebook i'm katie yokum author yokum is spelled y-o-c-o-m i tell people to think like it's like yo.com and then on twitter and instagram i'm at katie yokum one and if you follow me on instagram i put up a lot of pictures of the animals including like the bunny and the kitty have like a little love affair going so <laughs> that kind of surprises me i would have thought that maybe the uh kitty was trying to kill the bunny but <laughs> <laughs> well it's a little bit of a love kill relationship <laughs> <laughs> but mostly love okay Well, Katie, thank you so much for being on Perks. We have thoroughly enjoyed learning about you and about your book and the writing process. Oh, this has been so much fun for me. Thank you for the invitation. Thanks for joining us today. For show notes for any episode, please go to our blog site at www.perksofbeingabooklover.com. Follow us on Facebook at Perks of Being a Book Lover and on Instagram at Perks of Being a Book Lover Pod to see what we're up to and when new episodes air. If you enjoy our show, spread the word and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. That helps other listeners find us. Finally, a huge thank you to Forward Radio 106.5 FM, a grassroots, community-based radio station in Louisville, Kentucky. You can find our show there, live or in archives, at forwardradio.org, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts.